Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Where the, the inhale and the exhale are quite soft. So the way that you do that is for five minutes, you um, inhale and exhale in such a way that your body is working a little bit harder to breathe. So you're, you're not giving yourself as much breath as you should have. So you're lowering the default, if that makes sense. Yeah. For five minutes every day. And tape your mouth. Oh, we were going to do that this afternoon. But can I compare that a little bit to uh, chitta, our attention span? What happens to most of us is our attention span is so distracted, right, all the time. And you're all over the place, like maybe it's happening right now as I'm speaking, all over the place, somewhere else. And then, especially if you have a busy job, then you're kind of all over the place. And then when it's time to rest, what do you do? You go online. You go on the computer. And so your state of arousal is so upregulated that what you end up choosing for rest becomes something that reinforces the upregulation. And when your attention is that upregulated and you're that distracted, so is your nervous system. And then, one, you start losing track of yourself and what you actually feel. And two, you start making poor ethical decisions. And last, your emotions become very unstable because your level of reactivity is much higher than usual. So it's interesting to actually compare what we were talking about with the breathing with your attention span because they go together. They go together. So that's why what we're doing is an embodied practice. We need to develop a deeper relationship with the body that moves a deeper relationship with the body that breathes, a deeper relationship with the body that can be a ballast so that our center of gravity is low, so that we're not so blown around by um, emotional life. Well, when our attention's not stable and we can't focus, then we tend to act out of intentions that are often intentions we're not so clear about or intentions that are feeding desires in us that are not our true desires. They're kind of our shadowy or superficial desires. Right? And I mean, isn't consumerism like this? Yeah. Right? Like there's so many times where we end up buying things that we wake up the next day thinking, what? There's something called like a shopping hangover, isn't there? 
Is that what it's called? There is, there's a name for it. Buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. Thank you. <laughs> and how much of that comes from um, not having a clear intention because we don't really know where we are and we don't know how to get grounded. And that's why I'm a proponent of a daily practice. Not just once in a while going to a workshop, but a daily practice so that you have that resource there all the time. I know I really need it. Like With kids, I mean, even just trying to put pajamas on my son like, requires like as much patience as being in a board meeting. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> Depends what kind of board you have. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, there was just this interesting study uh, about how uh, parents' anxiety about math gets passed down to children and how they see children's anxiety about math at the same level and same type as parents. Why? Because the parent's helping the kid with the math and their anxiety lifts, right? And then the kids feel that anxiety. Is that with any subject or just math? Well, this study was done around math, yeah. And I thought it was really, I don't know if anyone saw, saw this, it was... But it was just um, anxiety being passed down in general. It wasn't around any particular topic. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, something very similar. Yeah. My mom, for a while, worked uh, at the ESP daycare. Uh-huh. And you would tell them it was exam period because the, the children were walk around like, extremely stressed out. Yeah. From, you know, students that were, their, their parents were students taking an exam. Like, so that these little, any versions of the parents running around, so <laughs> Yeah. So, any other questions or comments? Really? For us novice meditators, you recommend 10 minutes a day and then go from there? I recommend 10 minutes a day and go from there. I used to be um, very strict about 30 minutes a day as the minimum, but now I feel like the quality is more important than the quantity. So I say if you're going to set 10 minutes, really sit for 10 minutes. Like actually be there for 10 minutes. Yeah, knowing that that's probably a short amount of time. So really go for it. Really do it. So, any other questions or comments? Okay, so can we keep going here? Yeah. And then I actually, hopefully, we'll have time at the end. I just wanted to go over the posture of sitting one more time. Um, oh, I have to compare translations here. She trains herself, I will breath in, observing impermanence. I will breath out, observing impermanence. I will breathe in, observing dispassion. And I will breathe out, observing dispassion. I will breathe in, observing cessation. 
I will breathe out observing cessation. I will breathe in observing relinquishment. I will breathe out observing relinquishment. So, meditating on the breath, mindful of breathing, and then you start to notice that everything that is born ages and passes away. Everything. So a thought arises, unfolds, and passes away. And we want to be able to notice the arising, the unfolding, and the passing away of sensations, feelings, images, and thoughts. That's it. Sensations, feelings, images, and thoughts. And um, that's how stuff seems to arise in sequence. It seems like first it arises as one of, it comes in one of the sense doors, as sensation. We feel that sensation as positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. And then usually we have an image associated with sensations before we have a thought about it. And then we have a thought about sensations. And then memory kicks in and we have thoughts about thoughts about thoughts about sensations. Okay? So, breathing in and out, noticing impermanence. Then breathing in and out, observing dispassion. Uh, the word here that's translated as dispassion is viraga. Uh, raga means um, uh, dye, like, like uh, the way that a color is dyed into a fabric. So it's referring to noticing the fading of a dye. Okay? So noticing, noticing how our experience tends to be dyed right, with attachment and noticing how as we're practicing the, the attachment habit starts to lose its power. It starts to lose its power. Right? That, that, that muscle that wants to hold on to everything or wants to get away from everything uh, starts to lose its grip. It starts to lose its power. And here we're being told to observe that that happens. This is the good news. You're supposed to be really like, excited. <laughs> Finally, the good news. The good news is that the more you come back to your breath, the less power clinging has and craving and aversion. Right? It just loses its power. <clears throat> and then one observes cessation, nirodaha, which is the third noble truth of the Buddha's teaching, which is to know the experience of cessation, which is also the second or third line of the Yoga Sutra. Second line of the Yoga Sutra. Thank you. I actually wrote a book on it, so I should probably know that. <laughs> um, so let's just put all this together because this is the end of the text, of this section of the text, and this is a really interesting teaching, which is when you start to notice how mind stuff is just changing all the time, you can really start to see impermanence. 
but not impermanence like the philosophy, oh, everything in my life is impermanent, but you actually start to feel in your bones that the ground of reality is fluid. That nothing can be leaned on for satisfaction. And this is where the religion of Buddhism, I would argue, is actually markedly different than the Abrahamic religions of Judaism, Islam, Christianity, where in most religions, what we focus on is what's eternal, what's God, what's outside of time, right? It's what goes on forever. And here, one of the things we're being told is actually what we should focus on is what's impermanent, unreliable, unsatisfying. In other words, instead of trying to create permanent structure in our life to lean on, we actually begin to see that all structure is process. And that insight becomes the ground on which we build a life. Imagine if you carved your life out of the insight of impermanence rather than this clinging to try to make everything permanent, which creates a tremendous amount of suffering, doesn't it? Tremendous amount of suffering. The Thai forest teacher Ajahn Chah says, when you pick up a teacup, you should see it as broken. Which I would translate as, when you buy a car, you should see it as broken. So when it breaks, you're like, oh, right. <laughs> we should see how our bodies are healthy and they're breaking down also at the same time. We should see how our relationships provide great comfort and stability, and they're also changing all the time. And we can't rely on how they are now, because how they are now are changing. But, but that insight is something you can rely on. Because it actually makes room for other people to be other people. <laughs> Um, then we can notice how when we live in such a way, clinging doesn't operate with so much power. That's the dispassion part. And I'm, I believe, and I'm sure scholars might argue with me, but I think that this section of the text is not about sitting meditation practice. I think, yes, it's about sitting meditation practice, and it's about how to live and how to bring the practice into our life. I don't think this is just about sitting still. Lastly, when you can notice dispassion, then you can notice cessation. This is really interesting to me. We are so used to noticing reactivity and noticing aversion and noticing distraction 
but we're told here to also get to know cessation. Get to know those moments where there isn't any aversion, where there isn't any craving, where there's no reactivity. Get to know those moments of your experience that we easily skip, those moments of non-reactivity. You go for a hike up the mountain, Heritage Mountain, which is my favorite mountain here, (laughs) and you you go up to Heritage Mountain, and uh, when you're up there, um, you may feel some peace, knowing that the peace is impermanent, and then the mind comes in and goes, this is so peaceful, I want to hold on to this somehow. I'm going to build a house up here. Or I'm going to come here every week now. You know? I'm going to, I have to bring my kids here. You know, whatever comes up for you. The point is, is to use those opportunities to rest in the non-reactive mind. When we're lying down in the corpse pose or lying down to meditate, to use that release, that disorganization of tension, to know something about the non-reactive mind so we can start cultivating that, start reinforcing that. If you skip those moments of peace and you don't know them, then they don't imprint themselves and they don't get reinforced and turned into structure. They're a logical structure. They don't get built into us. They don't become learned. Um, And that's it. That's how you cultivate mindfulness. That's the end of the text. Good news, eh? Yeah, all done. Okay, we're done. (laughs) But you can see here that there's a practice that uh, we need to cultivate sitting still that then has to be brought to life in our daily experience and then we notice where we can't do it in our daily experience like I think all of us have this uh, spaces in our lives where we just can't bring mindfulness we can't do it maybe there's a certain uh, mental space you get in where you just can't bring any mindfulness into it maybe there's an emotion you get into where you can't bring any mindfulness into it Maybe there's a relationship with a certain person that you're so triggered by you can't bring mindfulness. So then we have to get back on our cushion and get steady. And then we go try again to bring our breathing there, bring our understanding, bring our compassion, bring our whole heart into those moments. And that's, that's, that's yoga practice. That's it. That's how it works. It's so easy. Yeah. So any last questions or, or thoughts? And then um, <clears throat> I just wanted to spend like five minutes before we finish um, on posture for sitting because everybody's going to go home with a ten-minute practice. Rebecca, you mentioned those four words, uh, feeling, thought. Mm-hmm. 
sensations, feelings, images, thoughts. But what I'm reading through this, this is this, this to me now. It's making sense to me that this is the process of meditation. First, you feel your breathing, then your body formation, and then yeah, what you just walked us through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this weekend, we only looked at two sections. Right. We looked at the first section on breathing, right. and then we skipped ahead to the section on working with the mind. Um, that's all you need to know. <laughs> I actually don't think this text has to be read in order. Yeah, I think one can move around. Yeah. Um, is there are there situations, circumstances where having cultivated qualities of mindfulness within would leave a person in a space of harm. Would leave them in a space of harm. <laughs> and, yeah, and I, what I'm thinking of, it's a question that comes up for me. Um, I think of um, Viktor Frankl and his description of concentration camps and how people who survived were often those who were able to escape into hope and memory of positive experience and to yeah. leave the present and to be and so that's an extreme you know yeah. example under the space of trauma but is there in that like a, even a, a spectrum of what, whether or not that's something that that's his take on it but um, is there a, a space where mindfulness needs shut down in place of taking yourself away. Yeah, I I think that that's why traditionally people have studied with teachers and had relationship with teachers that understood the maps of meditation because there are different times where we need different tools of meditation practice. And that's why whenever I'm teaching meditation, as I did this weekend, I always remind you that there's many different practices and even with what we've covered, there's many different variations. Um, and there are sometimes, for example, when someone's doing mindfulness practice and may have um, some trauma that they come in contact with, if they're in an environment where the teacher just says to them, just keep going back to your breath, just keep going back to your breath, that's not what's needed. What's needed is not to just try and be present with your breathing with it. There may be many more things that are needed. So I think it would be naive to say that mindfulness of breathing is a one-size-fits-all practice, which is maybe the danger of the popularity of mindfulness these days. Um, there are many variations of the practice that need to attune to what the person needs. Plus, we can also be mindful of the past and mindful of the future. So you can think about the future just knowing you're thinking about the future. And thinking about the past, knowing you're thinking about the past. Like planning. Sometimes you need to plan. But you plan and you know you're planning. As opposed to like being lost in planning. Intentional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there are times in formal meditation practice where it's really important to let go of story 
and actually be in the present moment. But overall, human beings need to story their lives to have meaning. And, um, but if you're a person who can't work with your mind, you tend to have stories that are dead. And I always think that that's what brings people to meditation and psychotherapy is when the story somebody is telling about their life has either stopped or disappeared or is repetitive. Yeah. So, um, did I answer your question? Okay. Uh, one more question or comment and then a few tips about posture. We'll say goodbye forever. Never seen again. What's that? You never know. Unless it's on Instagram. Go up to Heritage Mountain. Okay, so let me say just a few words about posture. I'll actually demonstrate.